This podcast is a recording of one of our webinars. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Adrian Ross from IT Governance. Um, I am a GDPR consultant, so hopefully everyone is uh, signed on for this particular webinar, which is Data Protection by Design and Default under the GDPR. Now, just before we begin, I'd just like to say that uh, my colleagues in the marketing department will send you out uh, a copy of the slides and a copy of the webinar broadcast uh, in the next day or so. So um, the intention this afternoon is to spend about 45 minutes talking about this subject and then uh, taking questions for about 15, 20 minutes afterwards. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, if there's anything after that, we can uh, email them into us and we'll deal with them. Um, as they come in. So, my, as I say, my name is Adrian Ross. I'm a GDPR consultant with IT Governance. I'll just go to the next slide. And um, just to say a little bit about myself, my background going back some, oh, I guess now 30 years, uh, covers all kinds of things like infrastructure services within the large financial institutions in the United Kingdom, uh, taking in projects that encompass things like business process re-engineering. I think in the 80s, I was heavily involved in business intelligence, data warehousing, and then looked at things like business architectures, how business can be, how businesses can operate more effectively. And then in the last 15 years, I moved into intellectual property. And um, of course, legal compliance plays a part in that. And then when I joined IT governance a while back, I joined the information security side of the team and then assumed um, some responsibilities for data protection. So I think at the moment that makes me, apart from our founder and chairman, one of two people in the company that can actually do both subjects. And I think that's quite useful because they do run in parallel and they do overlap from time to time. So I can speak with some authority about uh, both of them. And then more recently, in the last couple of years, I, I've taken a particular interest in enterprise risk management and um, have studied inter, inter, uh, international risk management with the uh, organization, an organization in London. And when I present our GDPR foundation and practitioner courses, I have a particular interest and emphasis on reputation management, which is all good stuff for GDPR. Okay, so this slide is a little bit about us as an organization. Um, I think we're currently about 250 people across the world, and we have offices in a number of different countries. Our, our background, if you like, started off about 15 years ago in the United Kingdom, and uh, more recently we've opened an office in the USA uh, and various other countries in the Benelux countries, other countries around the world. But as you can see there, that's pretty much how our organization is structured. I work in that top uh, gray part there, which talks about information governance, risk, and compliance. Um, and then we have a, a strong presence in our cyber resilience team, uh, have a number of consultants who implement information security around ISO 27001. Business continuity is in that team, 22301. As you can see, we do lots of penetration testing, um, PCI DSS work. And then on the other side, um, again, my colleagues, they have responsibility or, or experience rather in things like COBIT and ITIL uh, project management methodologies such as PRINCE2 
And then below that, we have we run lots of training courses and qualifications as an organization. We have uh, some software tools, one in particular called VS Risk, which integrates with ISO 27001 and also GDPR as well. And then we have toolkits and we publish lots of articles and, and different books on technical subjects within this particular area. But uh, we have a GDPR toolkit uh, just gone up for phase two release. And that helps particularly small to medium enterprise organizations um, really get to grips with all the different processes and various controls they have to implement to become GDPR compliant. Uh, as I say, as an organization, we work uh, literally across the world now and we work in all verticals, all sectors, all organization sizes. So in my particular field, I have some of the largest companies in the United Kingdom as clients, particularly financial services, pharmaceutical, uh, motor industry, uh, all sectors within all industries, and right down to literally startup operations, one-man operations. So very diverse client set, and that's one of the great things about working here is if no two days are the same. Okay, so for this afternoon's webinar, the agenda is as follows. So we're going to have a very brief introduction to the GDPR. And I do say very brief because uh, normally when I talk about this on uh, our foundation course, this is about an hour and a half in itself. But um, then we're going to talk about data breaches. And data breaches are essentially what organizations get fined for. Uh, then we're going to talk about this, the introduction of this new requirement in GDPR, and that is the requirement for uh, accountability uh, within organizations, in particular in relation to data protection. Then we're going to talk about privacy by design, which is a concept that's been around for quite a number of years now. And then privacy by design is reflected in the GDPR uh, by something called data protection by design and default. And then we're going to talk about privacy compliance frameworks, what that looks like, and something called PIMS, which is a personal information management system and uh, really sort of is linked to a British standard 10,012. But I'll talk about that a bit more when we get there and then talk about lessons uh, for data protection officers and also look at how the uh, statistics can be interpreted in terms of what the GDPR or implications for GDPR going forward. And that's statistics in terms of what's happened all over the world uh, in terms of data breaches. Okay, so let's begin by looking at uh, material and territorial scope. Well, uh, we, th we talk about something in uh, GDPR called natural persons. Well, this regulation is applicable to natural persons, and sometimes we call them data subjects, so one and the same thing. But essentially, it's about living individuals. And those, those living individuals, we have rights associated with the protection of our data, personal data, uh, protection related to the processing of that data. And processing is a, a very broad term, uh, which I'll talk about a bit more. And then we have this... Um, this introduction of the unrestricted movement of personal data within the European Union. Now, for those of us who are Europeans, that is very like our unrestricted movement of people, where people can move freely within the European Union. And part of this regulation says that we should also have that for data that relates to natural persons. What is in material scope? Well, it's, it's 
data that's partly or wholly processed by automated means. And the question that was clarified uh, quite recently, what does automated means mean? And it means anything that's processed by a computer, uh, but also telephony uh, covers infrastructure. So anything that's processed by electronic means. And um, so that's a very broad uh, definition there. And also that second line there, personal data that's part of a filing system or intended to be, well, that covers the requirement to to, to look after uh, paper-based records. And there is a considerable amount of paper-based records out there in industry. Uh, I think the latest I've seen is one organization that held 90 years' worth. So there is a large degree of paper-based records out there. So this covers both electronic and paper-based records, particularly or especially where those uh, paper-based records are uh, part of filing systems, so they're indexed. If it's not part, if they're not indexed, then they fall outside the scope of the GDPR. And finally, there it says in material scope, regulation applies to controllers and processors in the EU, irrespective of where processing takes place. Well, I'll just deal with that in the context of that final footnote there, where it says. It also applies to controllers and processors who are not in the EU. Well, really, if the controller or processor inside the EU processing data, for instance, in Australia, well, that's part of this regulation. If the controller or processor are outside the European Union processing data inside the European Union personal data, well, they're in the scope of this regulation too. So it covers quite a broad, um, has quite a broad remit, if you like. Okay, so entry into force and application, well, there's a, a number of dates on there, but what those dates reflect is really the formal process that we have to, that we take at a European level when we implement laws. So it has to go through a number of stages, including being published in the uh, official journal. You can see there on the 4th of May, it then goes into, it then takes effect 20 days after that. So that's how we got to the 24th of May and then applies two years from that date. So this is the formal process that, that, that we go through, uh, particularly in relation to this regulation. And what we had prior to that was a directive. Uh, the directive that came out way back in 95 required each member state to implement its own legislation in response to that. And what we ended up with is 28 different data protection laws across the European Union, Whereas the intention of this regulation, and as it says there, is it is directly applicable in all member states. And the intention is that there is increased harmonization across the European Union. And there is no requirement for each member state to implement its own national laws. This regulation takes uh, is applicable from 25th of May 2018, and therefore it is applicable across all the European Union. Okay, so natural persons, as we talked about a few moments ago, have rights, and we have rights to judicial remedy in the courts of the member states where the controller or processor has an establishment. Now, establishment is an old uh, sort of legal word, and historically it meant something like uh, head office or you know, a uh, factory or data center or something like that, a physical location that actually means where uh, economic activity is carried out. And that's what it means in, in the context of European law and in terms of data protection. 
Um, we also have right to judicial remedy in the courts where the data subject habitually resides. So what that means is that the data subject can take legal action against organisations that are controllers of processors, either where they have their economic activity or where, in fact, the data subject lives. Yeah, And it applies to uh, any damage, anybody that suffered material damage or non-material. Now, non-material in this case means things like hurt feelings, embarrassment, trauma, anything like that is in the non-material um, the definition there, and in fact, most recently in 2016, uh, one of the British courts made an award to to someone on the non-material side, uh, which was quite significant in relation to the award that was made on the material side, because historically, it is quite difficult in data protection law to establish what what the material figure should be. So the courts are now saying. Uh, on the non-material uh, definition or within that, that they've had enough of organisations, you know, disclo- uh, breaching data and, and causing people harm. So they are now starting to make awards under that particular uh, criteria. Um, now, that final point there, controller involved in processing shall be liable for damage caused by processing. Well, what that's about is, is very common in... Um, data protection law to 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 not be clear about uh, whether an organization is a controller or a processor and, and in reality controllers can also do processing um, and this is what this line is about it's saying that we have, we have an organization that is a controller and does processing too um, and there is a breach relating to the processing part uh, the the liability is limited to that processing bit if you like Okay, so we have this new thing under, or this new definition under the the General Data Protection Regulation, um, administrative fines. That's the introduction of those. We didn't have those before, but we talk about these fines being effective, proportionate, and dissuasive. Well, that is a a way of saying that um, the 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 lawmakers intend organisations to take these fines seriously, and they and they uh, and they will look at the effectiveness and proportionate application of those fines across the European Union. And that's a point I'd like to make, actually, is that this is a European law, and it's very much about the application of the law across the European Union. Okay, now the fines, when they are calculated, will take into take into account things like technical and organisational measures implemented. Now, let me just cover what those are, technical Technical measures would be technical controls like encryption or anonymization techniques, all the technical controls that we are we're all familiar with within our organizations, but also how those technical controls have been applied and the way they've been applied to protect the data of natural persons or data subjects. Yeah. Now, alongside that, we will also take into account organizational measures. Now, organizational measures will be things like how the organization approaches data protection governance, um, you know, what kind of structure do they have in place, what training uh, and awareness do they have in place, what kind of sort of logical controls like segregation of duties, how do they approach data protection, um, and that all comes under organization. How do they set themselves up to take care of data privacy? 
Okay. Now, there are two tiers of fines, uh, 2% and 4%. I'll go straight to the 4% because that's by far the most important bit. And the 4% fine is 4% of worldwide, worldwide annual turnover in the preceding financial year or 20 million euros, whichever is the higher of those two figures. Now, the important point to get from this is that it's 4% of global turnover uh, and it's in the previous, the preceding financial year, which means that's usually a published figure. So there can be, can't be any situation where an organization will come back and say, well, we had a bad year that year because they've already published that figure. Um, and as I say, it's, it's against a group of undertakings rather than an undertaking. It's a group of undertakings. And the very simple way to understand that is if you have 10 companies in the group, nine of them are compliant and the 10th one breaches, uh, the 10 are fined. Yeah, the, the fine is calculated against the, the turnover of the 10 companies. So you need uh, compliance across the group. Now. Um, so that's what that means in reality. Okay, so if the fines are all about breaches, let's take a look at how this works. Well, as you can see there, there's a definition. Personal data breach means any of that. So we've got accidental or unlawful destruction, loss, alteration, unauthorized disclosure or access to personal data transmitted, stored or otherwise processed. So this, of course, means that if we get back to what we said at the beginning, where we have uh, controllers and processors in the EU processing data outside the EU or controllers and processors outside processing data inside. So if even if somebody accesses data, uh, looks at data from outside the European Union, that is still regarded to be a breach. Um, unless, of course, they, 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 they have that as part of their job. But if somebody can look at data from outside uh, the European Union into the European Union, that covers a breach as well. Now, we have controller obligations here and we have processor obligations. Um, now, we have this... Um, time period of 72 hours after the controller becomes aware that they have 72 hours to notify the supervisory authority. Um, supervisory authority in the United Kingdom is the Information Commissioner's Office. Um, supervisory authority, the, the words are as the, the term in the GDPR for all the regulatory bodies across the European Union that look after data protection. So they're all going to be supervisory authorities. And they on their notification of a breach, have to describe the nature of the breach, whether it's sensitive data, how many records, what the implications are. Um, and if they fail to report that breach within 72-hour period, they have to provide an explanation to the supervisor, the authority. Yeah. Now, just to qualify that third point there, um, there's no requirement to notify the supervisory authority if there is no risk to the rights and freedoms of natural persons. Well, some of you may be saying, well, what does that mean? Um, it basically means in, in uh, GDPR terms, uh, sensitive data. Yeah, so there is not a requirement to notify if it's not sensitive data. However, um, some organizations that we've worked with in the United Kingdom choose to notify anyway because they want to be seen to be doing uh, the right things. And in fact, we had a, a, a client last year who breached 150 records of sensitive data, 
notified the, the information, the supervisory authority, United Kingdom, and they worked with them to, to uh, resolve that situation. Uh, there's no fine in that particular example, but, uh, so we always have processor obligations. We also have processor obligations too. And there is an obligation on the processor in terms of breaches to notify the controller always and without delay. And that's, that's important in there. Uh, as it says there on the second bit, there are no exemptions to this. And the, between those two, we have those, this term in the GDPR called undue delay. And, um, you know, it's, it's more within the controller side of things at the moment, but they say that the controller has to notify the supervisory authority with an undue delay, and that's still to be clarified what that means. But we very definitely have a 72-hour period. Okay, so we've got our data breach, and there is an obligation for controllers to communicate the the data breach to data subjects. Okay. Um, now, that first point there is communicate to the data subjects without undue delay if the breach represents a high risk to data subject, right? So we're back to this sensitive data again. Any communication with them has to be in clear, plain language that they will understand. Now, there are some exemptions to that that I'll just drop down to below, which says, Exemptions are if appropriate technical and organizational measures were taken. Well, what that means, if we've technically had a data breach, but the data is encrypted, so therefore we can't identify the data subjects, um, then we have an exemption from notification. Um, or if the high-risk data subjects will, will not ultimately materialize, so that's where we've had a partial breach, and we've not got to the stage yet where uh, we can identify an actual person or the data subjects, or communication with data subjects would involve a disproportionate effort. The only thing I would say about that particular line is that there's also a line in the GDPR says that that uh, organizational controllers can use a public communication, so a press release or something on the website to communicate to all the data subjects as a group. So coming back up then, the, the controller may decide that, you know, in relation to this particular breach, that one of those exemptions apply. However, that third line on the top half of the screen says, and it is true, that the supervisory authority may overrule that decision and compel the controller to communicate directly with the data subjects. It might be that they decide that the, the breach is serious enough that data subjects need to know. Okay, so... Let's look at some of the breaches or data breaches in the United Kingdom. Well, as you can see, this is, is 2016 data, but I think what's quite relevant in here is the data breaches by sector. And this information has come from the, the Information Commissioner's Office, but you can see there's quite a high level of breaches in the health sector. And one of the reasons for that is that we have um, you already have mandatory breaching, breach uh, notification in that area. So every time there's a breach in the health sector, they have to notify the UK Commissioner's Office. And that's why the figures are so high there. Uh, public sector also, there's an administrative requirement to, to make notification. The other sectors in there, in effect, are voluntary uh, notification of breaches to, to the 
information commissioners of it. So what will be the supervisory authority? So as you can see there, over the 448 new cases, um, that's how they were split across the different sectors. Health, of course, has a high degree of sensitive data, as does local government, as well as may well be the case with legal profession um, and various other sectors there. Okay, so when we look at this from a cyber breach perspective, 69% um, of large organisations and 38% of small organisations suffered breaches in 2015. So at a cyber level, there's still there's a very high level of uh, breaches going on. And I think also since 2015, I think we've seen um, cyber activities and cyber uh, breaches go up exponentially in terms of the, the seriousness of, I think we had one probably about a month ago now with our own National Health Service where we had uh, denial of service to, to, to most of the health service in the UK. As you can see there, there's some statistics from PwC that says, you know, the average cost of a single breach in a large organisation is 1.4 to 3.14. Actually, I would question those figures because some of the clients that we have spoken to in United Kingdom end up making far bigger provisions in their finances to, to deal with breaches. And I'm talking particularly more about the ones that are, um, you know, where the information has got out into the public domain, so where there's clear lack of controls internally, they need to spend a lot of money to fix that. Okay. And generally speaking, organisations expect more breaches than last. Well, as I said earlier, since 2015, I think we would all agree that you know, whichever newspaper it is we pick up in the morning or whichever email or feed that we listen to or, or look at, you know, breaches are increasing both in frequency and in seriousness. Okay, when we look at the breakdown of these breaches, let's go back there, um, almost 70% of them are from external sources. 37% um, denial of service, and I believe that's what we had with our National Health Service a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, even going further down, you can see staff-related security breaches. And there, there is some statistics around the United Kingdom about, um, you know, intentional breach, intentional breaches, and this tends to be from uh, disaffected staff or employees. Yeah. And then, Inverted human error, I mean, that's very simply just sending the wrong stuff to the wrong person, the wrong, the wrong data. Okay, so when we look at these cyber breaches from another perspective, what the important point here is that affecting all sizes of firms, from micro right through to very large firms and average number of breaches, uh, during the year, as you can see, the bigger the organization, the bigger the average, um, and you can see the numbers associated there at the bottom. So there's quite a lot of this stuff going on all the time. Most of what's happening is to do with viruses, spyware or malware, um, and then now we're seeing the emergence of other organizations impersonating, making impersonations, um, on emails and online activities. So there's quite a bit going on in the cyber world at the moment. 
So let's talk about accountability under the GDPR. Well, what does it mean? Well, what it means is that, you know, we have these data protection principles that we've had in data protection law for some time now. At the moment, we have eight in the United Kingdom. They're now going down to six within the GDPR. It doesn't mean the, that we've forgotten about two because the other two are now folded into the regulation. And the important change on this particular slide is principle one, where we have increased transparency. And that's a big change on uh, the first principle there, but also the introduction of this term called accountability. And accountability is how an organization applies the data protection principles as a whole within the organization. Okay. Now, the Information Commissioner's Office in the United Kingdom has given a talk on this subject because people were saying, well, what does it actually mean? And what they're saying is it's not about doing it as a, a box-ticking exercise. It's about in, implementing a framework, and we call that a privacy compliance framework, that builds a culture of privacy within the organization. And I saw a comparison, uh, I think, from the ICO as well, where they said it's a bit like health and safety, where data subjects or employees or customers can work with an organization and rather like the, we all know that our health and safety is taken care of is we all know that our privacy is taken care of. Okay, so how does that work through in the GDPR? Well, it mandates organizations to put into place comprehensive but proportionate governance measures. And that, that's quite an important phrase there because it does have to be comprehensive so that it takes uh, into account internal controls, uh, security controls, data privacy, but also looks at things from the, the outside in as well, and that, in, that involves some form of cyber uh, resilience. Yeah. Um, proportionate governance measures, well, that means that, you know, not every organization is the same, and I think I mentioned earlier some of my clients are, are big financial services, so they have something called the three lines of defense, which is a... a you know, a control framework that they implement. Well, clearly that's not relevant for smaller organizations. Um, and it's all about implementing what is right for the organization that you work in, uh, but also you have to comply with the law. So you need to come up with a framework that works and protects the data that, that you look after in, in relation to the particular risks your organization faces. Okay, and so and people also say, well, is it a cultural change? Well, yeah, GDPR is a cultural change because um, now we're having to take data protection very seriously, and you know we just can't slot it in as part of some kind of system that's uh, implementation that's taking place. It has to be from the top down, as we've experienced in information security for a number of years. If the CEO uh, doesn't believe in it, why would anybody else? Okay, so it's all part of the overall systems approach to how it manages and processes personal data. So let's talk about privacy by design. Now, privacy by design is a concept that has been around since about the 1990s. Um, it originally came out of the Canadian Data Protection Commissioner's Office, and uh, way back in 2010, they, along with a number of other countries, encouraged the adoption of the principles of privacy by design. So we have data protection principles, but we also have principles for privacy by design. And uh, way back then, 
they started to foster the adoption of these seven foundational principles into the legislation of or, or the uh, jurisdictions of each country that would sign up to this, um, up to adopting the principles. Um, so they were very much educating the world about how to make changes in national laws to incorporate these principles. Um, then the Federal Trade Commission recognised privacy by design in 2012. And of course, in the GDPR, it is incorporated by the European Commission, although we call it something slightly differently, uh, slightly different rather. Okay, so we have our seven foundation foundational principles. Well, the first principle is proactive, not reactive, and this is about us being preventative with the design or designing into our systems, um, uh, you know, controls that prevent things happening, so before the fact rather than, not, than afterwards, yeah. And then we have an approach that is called privacy as the default setting. Well, we all know that if it's the default, everybody or default rules, as they say, within organisations. So what we are doing here is seeking to deliver the maximum degree of privacy but by ensuring that all personal data is automatically protected in any given IT system or business practice. Yeah. So if the individual does nothing, they know that their privacy still remains intact. Yeah. So it's built into systems by default. Then we look, when we look at privacy embedded in design, what we mean there is it's embedded in the design of architecture, systems, business practices, and we're not bolting it on uh, as an add-on after the fact. So, therefore, privacy becomes an essential component of the core functionality that's being delivered. Um, it's integral to the system without diminishing functionality. And then we've got full functionality, positive sum, not zero sum. Well, what that's about is saying that there are no trade-offs, there are no unnecessary trade-offs, so we're not trading off security for data privacy and vice versa. Yeah, it's, we are demonstrating that it's possible to have both in the organization. End-to-end -end security, well, that's full life cycle protection. So that's start to finish privacy throughout the organization. Whichever, whichever bit in the life cycle, the data is protected and covers things at the end like security and, and we cover cradle, cradle to grave lifecycle management information right to the end. Visibility and transparency. Well, that's all about whatever the, the business practice or technology that we're using, it is in fact operating according to the stated promises and objectives and subject to independent verification. Yeah. Everything's visible and transparent to the users and the providers alike. It comes back to the old saying, trust but verify. Remember, trust but verify. Respect for users' privacy. Well, keep it user-centric. Right, so we have strong privacy defaults, appropriate notice, and empowering user-friendly options across, the, across our systems, and essentially keeping it user, looking at it from a user perspective, making it user-centric. Okay, so we have this thing 
called Trilogy of Applications. And this is where we can make the biggest changes. So in information technology, what we're saying here is technology in itself is not a threat to privacy. The key is how we use it. So within that, we can use various techniques to sever personal identifiers from data, uh, encryption, all these techniques. And then as technological innovations come along, we can use these to minimize the threats to data privacy going forward. Accountable business practices, well, that's all about um, implementing serious privacy measures within the organization. So really what we're doing there is we're changing the emphasis from uh, privacy being a compliance issue and making it a business issue, protect the business, increase, and by doing so, increase competitive advantage. Okay, so finally, physical design and network infrastructures. Well, that's even at its most simplest level about things like um, physical controls, making sure that, for instance, when someone comes into you know, a particular office environment that they can talk about things in a confidential way. Uh, patients can talk about, you know, medical conditions in a confidential way in the doctor's surgery um, and making sure that even simple things like data that's stored away in filing cabinets and stuff, that that data is locked down and secured. Yeah. But also covers things like logical controls as well, logical controls to systems. Okay, when we look at application areas, well, these are there are a number of uh, papers that have been produced on the subject and it covers all these different areas and I think in terms of um, GDPR the one that brings out uh, most immediately is big data and data analytics this is now going to get a big focus um, certainly under GDPR but also other regulations that are coming down the line and I think most, most recently uh, I saw that Vodafone in the United Kingdom is one organization that is actually starting to, rather than interview employees, they are videoing them and then letting artificial intelligence make decisions about who to employ. And in fact, it even went as far as saying that they're actually selecting management by using this technique. Well, this is all profiling um, using artificial intelligence, and this is all coming through, and this is all part of privacy by design application areas as well. So who is this relevant to? Well, I mentioned earlier that we talked about accountability. Well, who is accountability applicable to? Well, it's applicable to everyone in the organization from the very top down. And what we are seeing in IT governance uh, most recently is that, you know, CEOs and chief operating officers now are really starting to engage with the importance of implementing the GDPR and the risks and consequences uh, of not doing so. Um, the key candidate in all of this will be data protection officers because they will have to articulate data uh, data protection by design and default to a number of different um, you know actors in the organisation. So they will have to liaise between the board, uh, the data subjects, IT, compliance, risk, all these various. Uh, pieces of parts of the organization. Risk managers, well, it's important to them as well because if we 
do data protection by, divine, by design properly, then we reduce our risks. Uh, there's also implications for the legal team. Um, then designers, analysts, engineers, science, computer scientists, and application developers. Well, these are the folks that will need to be building this into our systems. Uh, not only our new systems, but also look, taking a look at our legacy systems, which I'll talk about in a minute. Okay, so ICO has an overall systems approach. And as you can see, they are taking into account nature, scope, context, and purposes. Well, how complex is, the, is this for your particular organization, and particularly uh, looking at the rights and freedoms of natural persons, being able to demonstrate this through appropriate technical and organizational measures? Uh, state of the art, well, that second point there, the GDPR doesn't define what state of the art is, but there are, are in fact, I had this conversation with someone the other day that even now we can just say that um, encryption is no longer state of the art, it is a standard within the industry, and that would be one thing that we would need to look at um, implementing within an organization, and there are various standards in encryption, so we need to get the right one for us. And then finally, controller has to implement technical and organizational measures for ensuring that by default. So there is the word default coming through. Only the personal data is necessary for each purpose is, in fact, being processed. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that more on the next slide, because Article 29 is the article within the GDPR that talks about data protection by design and default. And as you can see, there's... Some of the gives you some idea how to go about doing this. About the obligation applies to the amount of data collected, the extent of the processing, period of storage, accessibility. So all these things need to be taken into account within the umbrella of data protection by design and default. That next point: personal data is not made accessible to in, an indefinite number of persons without the individual's intervention. Well, that is a default position, and that's basically saying our default position is that our data is private to us as individuals. They are, there are uh, recognized techniques such as pseudonymization and minimization, and you would also include encryption in there. Uh, anonymization, too, would be other techniques that we can use to protect data by design. Okay, so we have our uh, we have a, a tool that we use in the GDPR now called the Data Protection Impact Assessment. And I often describe this to people as a very comprehensive risk assessment that we undertake as organization. Um, now, there's three words on that first slide there that I'd just like to highlight for the attendees' benefit. There's the words confidentiality, integrity, or availability. Now, those three words, for those of us who have a history in information security, mean international data protection or data security standards like ISO 27001. The GDPR itself doesn't mandate any particular standard or any particular um, level of encryption, but it, those three words are the three words that jump out and say information security standards. So, therefore, a data protection impact assessment 
is a subset of an organization's risk management framework. It is not the risk management framework. It is a bit of it. Um, draws on experience and understanding that's already within the organization. And then from the, con the conclusions of our data protection impact assessment, we fold into our existing risk treatment plans. Well, in our data protection impact assessments, one of the things we do is we do a risk assessment and then straight afterwards we do it what is in effect risk, risk treatment. Yeah, and by doing this, we're demonstrating data protection by design and default. Um, and as it says there, DPI should already be part of risk management as normal. Now, what I would say is some organizations have already started to do these before uh, 25th of May next year. And the reason being they see it as a tool to really get a, a, a grasp of the risks for the organization. Okay, now data protection impact assessment. The data protection officer plays a key role in all of this. Um, he may not, he or she may not be the person who actually does it, but they are the, the person who assures that it has been done properly. Okay, now DPIAs may cover uh, multiple processing uh, risks or operations. So anything that's automated, anything that's on a large scale or public, publicly accessible, yeah, is look at those particular scenarios. And as it says there, a single DPA may address sets of similar risk operations that present similar high risks. So really, the DPIA is not a one-off exercise. It is something that we're consistently running all the time for different things within the organizations. And the best way to think of it is if we've got any system that is going live or a new architecture that's going live or we're launching a new business process, data protection impact assessment is essential. Um, and as I say there, it's conducted for all new systems and processes. And we, of course, must remember, and, you know, those of us who are a bit older in the industry will remember that you start off with a project and you have a, a, a live date a year in front. And what happens along the way is the functionality changes, it increases, decreases, or we have uh, scope creep or whatever. And, of course, we have to run this DPIA again, because otherwise we're not doing a proper risk assessment. Uh, so we're constantly re-evaluating the risks of systems going live. And, of course, should be conducted on legacy systems too, because there are lots of legacy systems that have been out there for decades now. Um, in fact, before, you know, the, the, the concept of privacy by design or data, or data protection by design and default came along. So we should be running DPIs against legacy systems too and working out what are the risks, the privacy risks associated with those and updating the risk register and any project plans. And let's not forget that the approach adopted by adopting this approach, the, you know, the constant use or implementation of DPIAs would go towards any breach mitigation because this is something that the supervisory authority would take into account when assessing a breach, um, whether or not you are running DPIAs. Uh, risk assessment should be part of staff training. Well, if we're going to be assessing risks, well, people need to know what that's all about, risk I think I mentioned earlier is, is part of my skill set and risk people, professionals tend to have their own language and what that all means. So we need to make that part of staff training. 
So the application of DPIEs demonstrates accountability. Okay, um, it's hard to say that we're demonstrating accountability if we're not doing data protection impact assessments. So privacy compliance framework, I touched on this a bit earlier. Um, each organization needs a privacy compliance framework and that privacy compliance framework takes care of governance. It takes care of privacy principles, but also policies, procedures, controls and records. And this comes within something we call PIMS, Personal Information Management System. Now, in the United Kingdom, we have a standard for that, which is British Standard 10,012. And what we're doing by putting this framework together is making sure that we can actually deliver privacy by design and default. And again, as I said earlier, this needs to be tailored to the risk profile of the organization that we're dealing with. Okay, recitals. Well, recitals in the regulation um, set out the context of why we're doing things. And it says here that controllers should adopt internal policies, which in particular meet the principles of data protection by design and default. So we need that within policies. And then that second one, 108, when we talk about adequacy, can, adequate, adequacy decisions, well, um, that is particularly relevant when we start to transfer information outside the European Economic Area. So this recital 108 is talking about the principles of data protection by the design and default when we transfer information uh, across across the world outside the EEA. So we've got policies and we've got taking, uh, mentioned in data transfers and also within uh, various other articles. And I'll go straight to um, Article 47 here because we have a mechanism for transferring data outside the EEA, that mechanism is called binding corporate rules. And even if you look at Article 47 there, competent authorities, supervisory authorities shall approve binding, shall approve binding corporate rules, um, provided they apply to general data protection principles and at the end, data protection by design and default. So it's, data protection by design and default is not just within the organization, it is out with the organization, particularly where we're transferring Information and this is a supervisory authority, uh, you know, uh, saying that when they approve binding corporate rules, binding corporate rules for transferring which transfer information should also include data protection by design and default. So, data protection by design and default permeates its way through uh, everything the organisation does. Okay, now what are the lessons here for data protection officers? Well. You know, we can have GDPR compliant documentation within our personal information management system, but we still need an effective ISMS, and that's an information security management system. And that, and specifically, we're talking about ISO 27001. Uh, we have lots of experience with IT governance, and we can say that where people have an effective ISO 27001 implementation, it is much more effective when dealing with breaches uh, containing things like reputational damage and avoiding data subject acts, uh, actions and you know significant penalties yeah accountability genuine top management is engagement is essential well as i said earlier 
if the CEO doesn't believe it, why should anybody else? Okay, within that, DPOs have effective independent oversight and have to be able to proactively engage with cybersecurity teams. Um, they must be able to articulate privacy by design to the different functional areas of the business and explain why we're doing this. So a business risk-based ISMS yeah, does exactly that. It's an essential component of the privacy compliant framework. Yeah, data protection impact assessments. Okay, now lessons for organizations. Well, I think this is quite an important slide here because the, the statistics I showed you earlier um, in terms of breaches, and particularly in the United Kingdom, rely heavily on an administration requirement in our own public sector. So there is a, a an automatic um, notification within that public sector. Within private sector is in fact voluntary, and in fact, you know, the 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 the, um, the educated view is that in fact the number of breaches are far in excess of the ones that we looked at earlier because a lot of organisations are just not um, making notifications in the private sector. So from 25th of May next year, we have this mandatory data breach reporting under the GDPR. Remember, we had this 72-hour period. Um, so if we're going to have mandatory data breach reporting across the piece, that's both private and, and public, um, it's logical that the number of breaches will go up. Yeah, The number of breaches that are reported will go up. And in fact, this would follow a pattern that was first seen in the United States. Um, where when, in, when mandatory breach reporting was brought in, actually it went up quite significantly, massively in fact, I would say. Um, therefore, if the number of breaches are going up, or the number of reported breaches, it follows on that there will be increased enforcement. Yeah. One of the things they will look at when looking at what has happened, they will obviously look at technical or organisational measures, but they'll look at the application of data protection by design and default. How has that been applied within the organisation, if at all? And there'll be increased fines for not demonstrating accountability. And the thing, of course, with data protection by design and default, it takes a while for the benefits to come through and to be realised. So it's a kind of medium to long-term return. Um, and what we are seeing at the moment in the United Kingdom is already organisations that are going live with projects over the next 12 months are saying, right, let's stop and take another look at this. Let's look at this from a data protection by design and default. Does it conform to this data protection by design and default? If it doesn't, we're just storing up and, in fact, maybe making a, a, you know, an issue more serious by going live without it being built into the project as we go forward. So a lot of organisations now, and some organisations who I would say had quite a high risk appetite um, are now starting to rein in that risk appetite and say, we're going to look at this going live now and we need this built into our project plans. Otherwise, there's a big risk that organisations will fail going forward. Okay, so the GDPR requirement is controllers must implement appropriate and technical organisations. I will say this applies to processes too. Okay, so policies, codes of conduct, um, 
ISO and BSI are both developing GDPR-focused standards. Well, ICO, ICO, uh, that's ICO, Information Commissioner's Office, is looking at a, a, one of a number of authorities across Europe looking at a, a European data protection seal. BSI, the British Standards Institute, already have the PIMS standard or the BS 10,012. Um, ISO 27001 is a, a, an international standard that meets the appropriate technical and organisational measures. Interestingly enough, the BSI uh, 10,012 standard that I mentioned earlier, ISO 27001 was a British standard originally, so maybe the BS standard will become an international standard too. So ISO 27001 is one of the frameworks that we can implement that gives assurance to the board that things are being managed in accordance with the regulation. As it says, finally, there manages all information assets, all information security uh, within the organisation, protecting against all the threats. So within IT governance, there are, just finally wrapping up now before we take some questions, there are a number of um, various publications. I would particularly recommend the implementation man manual there as being one that, having got some feedback, people have found very useful. And then I say we have toolkit. There's another compliance gap assessment tool there that, you can very quickly download and uh, work through that with your organization and get a feel for where you're at. In terms of training, uh, we have a number of training courses, and we run these all across Europe um, and also um, and Channel Islands. We've done quite a lot of this. Uh, and now what we have in the United Kingdom is organizations putting, you know, 100 people through these courses because they recognize the importance of GDPR. Um, so the one day is an introduction to GDPR, the four day is an accredited practitioner course and that looks at things from a data protection officer's perspective uh, and is heavily uh, uh, case examples we have in there that we work through continually, uh, and by the end of the week, people have a very good understanding of what is required. And in data protection impact assessment, that's a one-day standalone course that we do as well. Um, in terms of what we're offering to the market, one point I'd like to make on this slide is, when you implement 27,001, you, you define the scope of that implementation. The scope of implementation for GDPR is largely determined by the data footprint within the organization. As you will appreciate, you know, an investment bank has a, a different personal data footprint from a large commercial retail organization. So, you know, every organization has a different uh, personal data footprint. So that determines wherever you've got personal data that falls within the scope of the GDPR. So we are doing a number of things in this area. We're doing data flow audits, which is working out what data you've got, where it is, where it's going, and what we find within that is that organizations, without exception, have much more data than they think they have. Then we do a gap analysis that works out where are you at the moment. Incidentally, most of the most of the organizations in the United Kingdom are not Data Protection Act compliant. And, in fact, we had one chap who came to us with 40 companies in the group, and he said none of them were Data Protection Act compliant. So a lot of work to do there. Implementation of uh, personal information management system. We're also doing that with organizations. 
27,001, we've been doing that for a number of years now, as, as, as is the same with Cyber Health Check. So a lot going on there. Uh, as I say, we're just going to go in a question and answer session now. Um, there you have my email address, so if you need to email me directly, that's my email address. As I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this um, session, my colleague will be sending you out copies of the slides and how to get the recording. So I'm just going to open up for questions now. Okay, so we've got questions now coming in quite heavily. I'm just going to go back to the start. Um, what is the minimum encryption requirements on databases? Well, the GDPR doesn't mandate any particular uh, level of encryption. Uh, it's for the organization itself to determine that the encryption that they have implemented is adequate for the risks associated with what it is they're trying to protect. Okay, so that's that's for Simon. Um, mentioned a court award in 2016. Was this under GDPR? As we've not been told, it is enforceable until May 17. Yes, right. That's quite an interesting question. That um, that award was made under the current law, which is the Data Protection Act 1998. Um, but of course. When we go live with the GDPR, we are, it is in effect something like, if you like, ground zero. Um, you know, so we start moving forward with a new set of rules. Um, but all the case law that has gone on before that particular date is all relevant. Yeah, so, for instance, how we've got to classification of sensitive data or personal data, um, non-conformance with particular bits of regulations, that all gets carried through. Sensitive data, um, Bruce, there is, a, uh, there is a definition in the GDPR that talks about sensitive data, but essentially we're talking about things like uh, race, race, ethnicity, political orientation, sexual orientation, uh, trade union membership is all in there. So all the what I call touchy-feely subjects. Um, sensitive, so Antonio, that's in there too. Uh, name, telephone, and email, well, those will all be classed as uh, sensitive data, or personal data, rather. Um, let me just go further down. Um, Wayne, you've asked about the 72-hour period. Well, there is stuff around to say that um, what you're asking is correct. Uh, I suggest maybe you go and have a, a look at some of that. It's online or um, send me an email and I'll see if I can send you something. Yes, it's definite. Processors do have to notify the controllers all the time. What does GDPR mean to marketeers, uh, specifically email marketeers? Well, there's a lot going on uh, in this particular area, Tim, and... Um, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but there's been a lot of fines recently for organisations that are retrospectively trying to uh, align their consent. Consent is a big change in the GDPR, and what these organisations have been trying to do is email people to get consent for something they should have had consent for already. And, you know, the ICO in the United Kingdom has quite rightly said, well, you know, that in itself is marketing when you do that. So these organizations have been fined. 
And of course, the other question is to do with bought-in lists, organisation that buy in lists of people they can contact. Um, well, the obligation is on the organisation buying the list to ensure that the information that, that they are being given is being is being passed across in the right circumstances, i.e. the person whose information it is had consented to that information being passed across. Um, what would I look for in the software application to help meet privacy by design and default? Um, what I would say, I mean, I'm not a technical software person, but um, really where this comes across, most of the time when we talk to data protect, about data protection by design and default, we're talking to um, software developers, application developers, program managers, project managers, and they all recognize what it is they do. This doesn't seem to be, uh, you, you know, something new to them. And, you know, one, one aspect that we have seen is, for instance, we go to one organization and uh, that organization uh, it's heavily uh, project managed, if you like. They have a great deal of competence in the project management uh, skills. And, you know, when we ask them, well, how do you deal with data protection or privacy, privacy by design? They say, well, we do that last in the project cycle. Well, data protection by design and, about, and default is about doing it first. In the When you sit down with the blank sheet of paper, first thing on that sheet would say, right, how are we going to look after privacy? Um, so there are are various techniques in there. I mean, pseudonymization, pseudonymization would be one that would spring to mind where we disaggregate data in a fashion that we cannot identify from whichever data set we're looking at who the data subject is. So by utilizing a technique like that, um, we can protect privacy for individuals. Um, has a decision been made on consent? What qualifies consent and age of consent? For the UK, well, yes, there is in fact a paper that's been recently produced, James, and it's up on the ICO website. It goes through consent quite clearly. Very, there is uh, something new in the GDPR called explicit consent. Doesn't actually say what that means or set out a definition, but what it means is that we have to be more clear than uh, than organisations have been in the past. And I say to people, well, I have to be black and white. There's no ambiguity or any confusion what the data subject is consenting to. Um, more specifically, more directly, uh, pre-tick boxes are out, as is the, the double negative, which means you have to untick this box to remove yourself. So that's going. And, you know, this one of the challenges that organizations are having to deal with is first question is whether the consent that they have at the moment is valid and that may or may not be the case and if it's if it's if it is the case what do they then need to do to get it to the higher standard within GDPR and you know there is a definition in there that has to be clear affirmative uh, unambiguous uh, when a data subject gives consent we must also provide a mechanism for them to withdraw consent and it has to be on the same medium so if we are getting consent online, we have to provide a mechanism online to for the data subject to remove that consent. So as I say, that paper is worth looking at. Um, there's a question here from Jerry about smaller companies can't afford to implement 27,001. Um, 
I would say ISO 27001 doesn't have to cost a lot of money. In fact, one of the challenges or one of the um, the clever things with ISO 27001 is to, to to do the bits that get you the biggest return. And in fact, we've done it. I've done it personally for you know one or two man organisations, and uh, you know fairly cost effectively. Uh, I mean, we if you go into the IC governance website. Jerry, you'll see there are various options to implement 27,001, and we have a range of uh, offerings from you do it yourself to we do all of it, and, and we have a, a range of them in between, so we can get a little help, get a lot of help, <clears throat> but uh, it's not a lot of money to do that. And one of the one of the misconceptions of 27,001 is it's a huge undertaking. Um, you know, well, it can be if you go down that route, but also you can implement it quite cost effectively. Um, what are the highest barriers for organisations? Is it culture or is it dark data or is it silos between areas? That, um, I think the highest barrier, um, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of legacy systems here because, you know, like I was touching on the fact that there's probably about I know at least one organisation that's got 90 years of paper records. I know at least one organisation that's got legacy systems that are 30 years old. Um, now, some, you know, there might be a counter argument to that to say that, well, we've had 30 years to bed these things in and down. Yeah, but the world is changing uh, quite rapidly, so we need to look at those. Um, it is a cultural change. It is partly hearts and minds, and provided you've got um, buy-in from the very top, and I'm talking CEO, uh, an operating officer, and, and, and look at the role of the data protection officer a bit more. I mean, we, we have another webinar on that subject, but the data protection officer is a very important job now, and one of the things he has to have is direct access to highest management. Um, so it's all about putting the right structure in place for uh, the organisation. I think the big challenges are consent, um, is a big challenge now. Pretty much every organisation is having to look at consent um, because of the change to data, the data protection principle one, increased transparency. All privacy notices are going to have to be redone. That's fairly common amongst all organisations. Um, retention of data is now coming into focus as something that needs to be looked at. Um, you know, so that, those are, I would say, the main the main things. Um, also, I would also say uh, breach notification. Have a team that deals with, you know, very clear policy procedure about how to deal with data breaches, um, because that that as soon as that happens, you know, you're on the spot. An organisation that can deal with that, and those are typically organisations that have, have some kind of framework, like twenty seven thousand and one and know who's doing what, and the procedure and the process can get through it. Uh, other organisations, the statistics where where they've got nothing, they've gone out of business overnight, yeah, because nobody trusts them anymore. Um, okay, let's have a look. What protection do processors have against controllers who refuse to take appropriate precautions? Um, well, Actually, when you look at the regulation, the, the standard of implementation of technical and organisational measures is the same on both 
types of organisations. And, you know, really what I would say, if I was a process, in fact, we had this question the other day, now that I, now that I recall, and this was a, an organisation that was a processor and was a very successful processor and dealt with lots of controllers. Uh, so their whole business was about processing, and the question that was raised was, well, how do how do I make sure that that the controller doesn't drop the ball? Well, I suppose on one level, um, you see, the thing is, the processor should be acting under the strict instructions of the controller, and that's normally set out in a very clearly, tightly defined contract. Um, so if I was a processor, I would want to ensure that that contract was very clear and that I was happy um, that, that that didn't expose me as an organization. So I wouldn't want a, a wide contract. I'd want a very narrow contract that said what particular types of data I had to process, when I had to process it, what I did with the data at the end, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and protect the organization that way. But, uh, you know, what's clear within this organization is controllers and processors are going to have to have a dialogue uh, with one another, and both should be approaching it with the same intent. Um, who can be a data protection officer? The article means there should be no conflict of interest and rules that certain officers. Right, so what that's about, data protection officers, is there has to be no conflict of interest, and that's correct in the question, Andrew. The But what's important there? is this data protection officer uh, role is about assurance. Now, if it's about insurance, it means that he cannot sit with an IT delivery or any delivery functional part of the organization that is going to conflict with his assurance responsibilities. Yeah, and you're absolutely correct. For, for smaller organizations, this may re represent a problem. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And, you know, usually it's, it's where somebody says, well, I'm doing the information security officer's job um, and, it, you know, it kind of makes sense. I'll do the DPO, but does that not make, does that not make me conflict, conflict me with that? And I, I would say in that particular situation, no, I think because the two things are complementary. Um, but clearly, if you've got responsibility to deliver IT systems on a given deadline, um, you know, that, that, involves personal data, I would say it does conflict. Okay. So then one more question, I think. Uh, um, cloud companies, Angela. Um, well, now that processors are in the scope of the general data protection regulation at the moment they're not in the scope of in scope with current legislation but gdpr brings them into scope and of course this brings in some of the biggest organizations in the world so two that spring to mind would be amazon web services and ibm global services um, and as processors that you have obligations under this regulation um, is the controller the customer well the controller is a controller, processor is a processor, and in terms of a breach, whoever makes the breach will be liable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what impact will GDPR might have in emergent acquisitions since people are buying customer data? Yeah, I mean, that's quite quite an interesting question because um, 
when one organization acquires another organization's one of the one of the things that it should be doing is something called due diligence and due diligence we would suggest goes on to look at things like uh, data protection governance information security why would you acquire a company that didn't do that well or did it badly because then the acquiring company is putting itself at risk yeah um, okay, folks, so thank you very much for that. We've gone sort of well over our time. Um, if there's any other questions, um, I believe there's a mechanism where you can send them in. I think you've got my email address, and I'll deal with them. Um, forgive me, I'll have to deal with them when I'm on the road. But uh, if you do send them in, it's been uh, great. Hopefully, you've got some value out of that. Uh, thank you very much. Goodbye.